Hi beloveds and welcome back to Beautifully Empowered. I'm so excited because I'm doing the part two of the esoteric perspective of Stranger Things. If you've not heard part one, I would encourage you to pause on this podcast, go to part one, which is the podcast that I did previously a few weeks ago, and then come back to this one. I just wanted to say before I move on that I realized in my last podcast that I did on Stranger Things, part one, at 15 minutes, I said that Max died. That would have been a huge spoiler if she actually died, but she didn't. I say that I said that Max died. What I meant to say was that Billy died and Max was tormented with guilt because she subconsciously obviously wanted, or it's not obvious, but it's obvious to me, wanted Billy to die. I think people would have picked, I think you would have picked that up. I'm not too sure, but I wanted to mention that because listening back to that podcast, I was like, Amy, Max didn't die. Right, well, no point watching it now. We know that Max dies. She didn't actually die. But anyway. Um, I wanted to mention as well what's really interesting about the names in the show as well. Talking about in the last part of the podcast, the divine feminine or, you know, the balance of yin and yang with um, Joyce and Hopper. If you actually look at those names, Joyce and Hopper, you see in those two words that says joy and hope. And they're two, obviously, very, very strong um, emotions or feelings or whatever that come together to actually build some sort of foundation for what the characters go through in Strange Things, or at least I think so anyway. And looking at Hopper's birth chart, obviously, in real life, um, he's actually a fire sign, and Joyce is a water sign, Scorpio Sun, Pisces Moon. Um, I think I mentioned what her birth chart was in the last podcast. And also, looking at the etymological definition of Mike, I'm kind of being like sporadic and all over the place here, but I just wanted to throw these out. Mike means who is like God, and obviously the name L is the name of God, and Mike who is like God. So that's very interesting that you have these two characters that actually, they have this beautiful relationship, don't they? And a lot of what is actually at least conveyed to me esoterically through my own spiritual lens is that there is a presence, there is a God presence within everybody, a divine spark within everybody, and it's about tapping into that source, tapping into that that consciousness within yourself, acknowledging first and foremost that, you know, you are consciousness, you know, it's not just a part of the brain, like consciousness, you know, is separate from the brain. I think like the mind and the brain to me at least are two different things. Um, the etymo- etymology of Joyce is the Lord. So again these names are very associated with God. And William is a compound of two words which is will, meaning will or desire and helm, meaning helmet or protection. So protect the will and desire to create. From this universal consciousness, you have this will and desire to create from them. As above, so below, the upside down. There is that will, that that journey, that trajectory that all of us go on, that diverts us from the source. You know, you have the Roman Holy Catholic Church that you know, says to you, you are innately a sinner and in order for you to get to heaven and not to burn in hell or at least go to purgatory, you need to confess your, you know, your sins to a priest and you need to do as you're told. And this is no disrespect to anyone that is Catholic, I know that's going to come across that way, but I have my own relationship with Christianity and somebody that was raised devoutly as a Christian that obviously I can see the beauty in Christianity but I can also see the dogma indoctrination and the very structure of control that suppresses the feminine energy within men and women, which ultimately causes us to gaslight ourselves and to, to negate the true essence of who we are. And again, 
will gets lost. Our willpower is lost. Our willpower to create is lost because we have allowed the suppression of our inner feminine. When you're not, I was having a discussion today with a lovely friend of mine, um, Joseph, if he's listening, hello. Um, and we're doing some concerts together and we were talking about how it's interesting that in, in, in a lot of heteronormative relationships you can see how the feminine is suppressed or feminine energy is suppressed. And I was, I was basically talking about or I was sharing my perspective that when you look at if a man is not in tune with his femininity, not necessarily femininity, with his feminine energy, then if he suppresses that feminine, feminine energy, the only way really a woman could stay in that relationship is if she self-negates. She has to suppress herself in order to stay in that relationship. It just wouldn't work. You just wouldn't be in that relationship if you were to express your true source, your true self, your true will and desire to create. What did you come here to do? You know, you didn't come here to be suppressed and oppressed and controlled and to be told that, you know, your truest desire cannot be fulfilled because you have to live a nine to five job and you have to, you know, do the do the the social norms of whatever society expects us to do. And that's just not the case. Like you can be whoever you want to be. And I think that if we don't understand the subconscious mind, if we don't understand our own mind, we give our will and desire to those outside of ourselves to create for us. And that's what it's about. You know, you, you have the power to create but are you creating consciously or are you creating unconscious, unconsciously? Because we're always creating. You know, when people say like, oh, creative people, creative people. I'm like, I understand what people mean when they say creative people. Because in my mind, when I think of creative people, I think of, you know, artists, poets, dancers, you know, actors, you know, um, pianists, like musicians, whatever. But in the bigger, grandest sense of that word, I know that creative includes everybody whether or not you're majestically creative I would say but um yeah because you're always creating it doesn't matter you're creating every single day you know it doesn't matter what you do if you're going to work and unconsciously just experiencing hell on earth basically because you don't want to be there you are still creating that with the lack of acknowledgement of how your subconscious mind works also looking at the name Dustin, which means Thor's stone, um, of war and fertility, which is associated with thunder, lightning and thunderstorms. And I find that interesting, again, because again, we're coming back to goddesses and gods and things like that. And again, Lucas means bringer of light. Lucifer, the light bearer, Lucas, like all of these names are associated with God. But what God are we talking about? Are we talking about a God in the sky that sends people to hell as and when he pleases? Who designed, like, who created human beings absolutely sinful and then says, oh, well, I created you and you're so sinful, therefore you're going to go to hell. Like, no, I don't really believe in that exoteric aspect or exoteric perspective on God. In my evolution, I've realized that God within, even Jesus was teaching about the kingdom of heaven is within you. And of course, the Roman Catholic Church decided which books to have and which books not to have in the canon, leaving out the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, and all of the books that I think could bring enlightenment to the human being, enlightenment 
meaning light, mind, light within the mind, third eye open. It's really, really simple. Hopper is really, really interesting because Hopper's name is Jim, James, which means a supplanter or someone or something taking the place of another as through force, scheming, strategy or the like, wrongfully takes the place of another to replace or displace. And I'm thinking about those names as well, like how his nickname is Hopper, but he's also called James. So he's also a supplanter, but he's also, you know, is also the divine masculine within that union of the divine feminine with Joyce. And I think that's really interesting to look at. And then when you put the words together, it's these, these, these are the words that are coming up. Light, the Lord, thunder, will, desire, protect, God, who is like God, fire, supplanter. I mean, you can mix all of those words up and you can definitely intuitively pick up something that it, that, it, that, you know, that it's, intuitively saying through the characters' names. And it's really interesting as well that Will is fatherless. Like, his father's not around and doesn't seem to care about his children's emotional needs. And then you have Max and Nancy, who are fatherless, you know, abusive stepfather. Elle is an orphan. Mike's parent is so nonchalant with his attitude to his children. He's so... He's actually really passive. Um, Dustin has a really overbearing mother to the point where I feel like she suffocates them. Um... And it's interesting because that that really is all of our story, really, isn't it? And everybody can relate to some extent through, I mean, I can relate to all of the characters, but I'm sure there's at least one character that you resonate with. And I think it's, you know, looking at our trajectories as human beings, you realise that this whole divide and conquer, you know, divide human beings by causing them to hate each other because of a different pigment in their skin. You know, my hair's curly, your hair's straight, therefore I hate you, you know we just need to really get over ourselves but everybody has their own trajectory and I think that everybody's processing their own experience in the best way that they can some people are experiencing life projected from a blueprint that is completely unconscious that's not to say that I think that I'm completely conscious because I don't I think that everybody's on a journey and I think you can become more conscious and you do something and it's not to say that oh now that you're conscious you don't make mistakes it's more like oh okay I noticed this habit in my life, I noticed this pattern, and now it's not just in the back of my mind, I know what I'm doing, and I know why I'm doing it, it's coming right to the forefront, and you're given an opportunity to assess whether you actually want to carry on with that behaviour, or carry on in that relationship, when you know it's coming from a wound, or coming from, you know, a place of lack of love for self. I said in the last podcast as well, within Stranger Things, that there is a lot of like water energy in the birth charts of the cast. And I think this is to symbolize intuition and emotion, which the show is heavily themed around intuition and emotion without me having to go too much into it, you know, especially with Joyce's character and how, you know, she's completely relying on her feminine energy and her intuition. And there's a lot of emotion brought to the surface through the characters and a lot of trauma and a lot of emotion emotional um, trauma that Elle goes through and it's almost like I remember when Stranger Things first came out and I think it was like I think it was season two or three it must have been two because it was really early on halfway through I was like oh this is so emotional I'm gonna stop watching it I was like this is way too emotional and I actually stopped watching it for about I don't know about six months and I think it's just where I was in that at that time in my life that I think 
sometimes you want to be conscious of what TV programs or what you know TV series you're actually watching in in relative to what you're going through in life because you, it's not always a case that you're in the greatest frame of mind to actually get the highest perspective of, of a TV show. You know, you're just going along with the ups and the downs and how a show kind of pulls on your emotions, you know. So I think just coming back to what the show is actually about, to me anyway, I think the emphasis of the show is about transforming trauma into power. Ultimately, alchemy of taking that base lead and turning it into gold, taking that dross and that that weight of the ego and unconsciousness and turning it into gold, you know, becoming the highest self, evolving, transforming emotional pain into power. So I can definitely see why the cast have a lot of water in their birth chart because they bring that energy into the show with them. Whether whether that's actually by design or not, I don't know, or whether the casting directors just kind of get a feeling for certain people, whether they actually look at people's astrological birth charts, I don't know, how would we know? Um, but bringing that intuition and that energy of intuition and emotion to the show, we can definitely feel what's meant to be felt. And it's it's that phoenix, you know, you obviously have the three different levels of Scorpio. For those that know anything about astrology, you have the scorpion Scorpio, the one that's the most de-evolved or the one that hasn't evolved, the one that hasn't transformed um, trauma into pain. And they just go around stinging everybody and they have this pedipalp, and I've said this before, that they end up stinging themselves before they even sting anybody else. And stinging somebody else really is just a reflection of the inner sting. And they just ultimately go around destroying people. They're very, very, very self-destructive. I think, like, as much as I'm a Scorpio moon, I think Scorpios can be extremely damaging um, when they are unconscious to other people, damaging to other people. Um, and I suppose everybody can, regardless of what astrological sign you are. That's not. I'm not saying that because you're a Scorpio, you're a damaging person unless you decide to heal, you know. Um, and then you have the higher level, not the highest level, but the higher level, which is the, I've said this so many times, the eagle, which the eagle is able to see its prey from above. So yes, it still has that element of unconsciousness because it attacks its prey from above, but then it swoops back up. So it doesn't ultimately try and destroy completely its enemy or whatever. Um, but it's definitely more evolved. And then obviously, again, the last sign is the phoenix, which is the one... Um, that dies unto itself. And that's what Scorpio really is about. If anybody knows any Scorpios, you'll know that like everything they're about is about, it's like about inner death. It's that emotional intensity of inner death. Think, um, think, um, I don't know, Halloween, for example. That's all to do with wearing masks. It's all to do with the psychology of society that wears masks and nobody ever gets to see the person behind the persona. Well, Scorpio's there to show you that's why we have Halloween in Scorpio season, to take off your mask, because the Scorpio is somebody that cannot stand shallow conversations. This is like an archetype, of course. Shallow conversations, surface talk. These are the people that will be inappropriate at the dinner table. You know, my ex said to me, what did he say to me? He was just like, you are the most inappropriate. If, if I could have a word to describe you, Amy Letitia, inappropriate. And I was just like, yeah, that totally resonates because I'm just inappropriate in every single way. Inappropriate simply because I just don't go by social norms. Obviously, to an extent, I do much more about sovereignty and anything that tries to resist or anything that tries to push against the truth of who I am or the truth of the truth of you know what I think that I'm here to do. If that even makes any sense. Um, 
I won't tolerate it. And I'm very, very passionate about speaking up when when it's the right thing to do, regardless of what everybody else is saying. And, you know, inappropriate, I guess I would do like really silly things, just like really silly things where I'd just be like, can't you just act a bit like normal? And I'd be like, no, that's just never going to happen. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you have to camouflage into society's social norms of, you know, heteronormativity and stuff like that. But no, I'm, I'm not going to blend in. I'm sorry. So yeah, um, Joyce gives me that Scorpio. Obviously, she is a Scorpio. Um, and I think her character brings a lot of transformational energy into the show. And looking at, I've said this before, but I think in the last podcast, but looking at Elle's character and the way that she is able to, over the four seasons that we've seen, if you've actually watched the four seasons that she is transforming a lot of trauma a lot of emotional pain and it's definitely not just about entertainment there's definitely like a story there that this trauma um at the deepest level has impacted her psyche so much that she actually eventually loses those powers and we've lost our power and we've lost our will to create and it's when you come back to the source when you come back to who you truly are that you consciously decide to protect that will, protect that desire to create. And the reason you protect it, the reason you protect your mind, (laughs) is because the stuff that's going in is going to project out. And that's why it's so important to understand and understand how the subconscious mind works. I find it really funny as well, just this is completely going off. Well, no, it's not going off topic, but this is just me with my Scorpio moon mind. The composer of Stranger Things is a Scorpio sun with a Pisces moon. This is exactly what I'm talking about. Like, even the music, um, the original music, obviously the composer of the show, he's bringing that emotional, intuitive energy through the music. And I think that's really important. I've said this before. I feel like it's a thing I completely... I'm always repeating myself. That I did a list one time of all my favourite artists and music that speak artists that music speaks to me on such a deep level and I realise what that deep level to me is, it's emotion and intuition and depth and I'm not joking, they were all um, water signs Scorpio, Cancer, Pisces mainly Scorpio and there was actually a bit of Earth there actually, I think Hans Zimmer is a Capricorn I think, just thinking yeah I definitely know he's an Earth sign Um, but one of my favourite cellists um she's a Scorpio sun with an Aries moon so again that's that water and fire and Scorpio and Aries being both the feminine the masculine feminine and masculine side it's just pure emotion intensity and again Winona Ryder is actually a Scorpio sun Pisces moon Millie Bobby Brown is a Pisces sun um and then looking deeper at the astrological birth charts of the main characters just to see where that water energy is I had a look at Finn Wolfhard, who plays Mike, his Venus is in Scorpio. That's really, really important when you look at someone's birth chart because a lot of the influential energies come from the Venus um, or the Sun on, or the Moon. Uh, that's what I look at anyway. Sadie um, Sink, who plays Max, her rising is in Cancer. Um, though her Venus is in Taurus, again, you're having that Earth and Water. I've noticed that sometimes there's that balance of Earth and Water. Um, and again, David Harbour, who also plays Hopper, also has his Venus in Taurus. And then Caleb McLaughlin, who plays Lucas, has his Venus in Virgo. So there's definitely a lot of earth and water there. 
is it Maya Hawk? Maya Hawk? Who plays Robin, her son is in Cancer, and her rising is in Scorpio. I don't think this is by accident at all. Um, if not just when the casting directors are obviously casting for actors, they look for a particular type of energy, whether they, like I said, whether they actually look at astrological birth charts. Who knows? Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But I think it's really interesting as well that the gentleman who plays Dr. Brenner, his sun sign is in Aries. And in the last podcast, I mentioned that the etymological root word of Brenner actually means to burn. And Aries is a fire sign. Aries does burn. And a masculine sign that represents birth of consciousness, the birth of consciousness. Dr. Brenner is the firstborn, Aries. Aries is the firstborn of the zodiac. Pisces is the last sign of the zodiac. L is a Pisces. Look at that relationship between Dr. Brenner and L being the firstborn, Aries, and the lastborn, Pisces. And L's Venus is also in Taurus. And so the gentleman who plays Billy, he's a Scorpio sun, a Cancer moon, and a Venus in Scorpio. This is what I mean. Like, there's no way that with all this water in people's birth charts, in these prominent planets of the sun, moon, Venus, and rising, that that is by accident. Joseph Quinn, who plays Eddie, is a Pisces moon. Um, I've not really looked into this, but Max Max Mayfield sounds like Maximilian. I'll just let you guys look into that. That just literally just came to me and I didn't really think of anything. But I think as well that the actual board game that they play, it's it's as if life is a projection of that game that they're playing. Like... Like as if, like, you know, Elon Musk said that, like, 50% chance that we're living in the simulation. Which, what is a simulation? It's just, like, we're fucking generating a game through our own lack of knowledge of self. And so what we create on the external is just this bullshit game that no one wants to fucking play, but we're forced to play it. And it's like, if life is a game, remember, you just need to know how to play it. This is probably going to sound a little bit muffled because I'm recording this afterwards and I'm not using the same technology to input this in, in terms of, um, in relation to what I just spoke about then with the, the games, the game Dungeons and Dragons, which is the, the, you know, how the Strange Things show starts out, it's the kids playing that game. Obviously we know that Dungeons and Dragons created the satanic panic <laughs> and it's really funny because we, we, you know, we fear as human beings what, what we don't understand. And what we don't understand is that the devil is the unacknowledged part of our psyche that we don't want to acknowledge. And so we scapegoat this malefic devil outside of ourselves because we haven't integrated our own unconsciousness. I am going to speak about in great detail the shadow psyche toward the end of the podcast. So I am going to come back to this. So what I find really interesting about D&D is that, you know, it, it doesn't focus so much on, you know, the average board games, you know, cognitive skills, which is using more of the the left side of the brain or more of the masculine side of the brain, you know, in in certain cognitive skills. And it really relies on, you know, um, togetherness. It really relies on togetherness um, and and, and your imagination in role playing. And I think that's really beautiful. It's, it's very, you know, I think of the game, the lab, I think of the movie, the labyrinth and fantasy movies like that, where the imagination is so integral, you know, Lord of the Rings and things like that integral to the actual storyline and I think when you you know in terms of the master um you know the the game centers around a master doesn't it and I think that that the master creator in this simulation in this game of life 
is one that is using his or her or their imagination to consciously create. Um, and on this trajectory, you will find monsters in these dungeons and dragons, you know, and it's all about the integration of that particular energy that, you know, in the mainstream, on the mainstream surface level, we're always, you know, you know, subconsciously geared toward fighting this monster or, but, you know, Stranger Things, I think that the overall esoteric is to actually integrate this monster, is not to just fight it and slay it and kill it, but to actually face it. And and, and as, as, you know, season four is quite clear on Vecna wanting the, the these characters to face their, their own shadow. And not just that, but to be a builder of your own world. And, you know, looking at the acronym God, the first letter of that acronym being G, and uh, that is generator. And then we have operator and destroyer. But to generate, to really build your world, you would need to become, at least if you want to build consciously and you want to build something that is tangible and real and meaningful and it comes from the deepest part of you that's not been tainted by your childhood blueprint and all of the the prison the you know the prison like ideological belief systems from religion and you know in order to do that you need to be able to access the shadow and to look at the hidden treasures you know finding hidden treasures treasures in dng or you know going on this labyrinth journey you know the david bowie and um, Jennifer Connelly movie was one of my favourite movies growing up and it's it's about building your world. She becomes conscious of the trickster, David Bowie, who is trying to lure her in with false promises and lure her in with this trickster masculine energy. And, you know, she, she becomes, you know, she becomes aware of the dream within the dream and she decides to create, you know, her own world. And I think it's really important to realise how powerful the subconscious mind actually is. And one of the reasons why David Bowie wants the child is because the child represents creation. When you have the divine masculine and the divine feminine that come together to create this perfect balance, what you create out of that is the child. It's it's the the the, the result of that feminine and masculine coming together. And in a non-literal sense, in an esoteric sense, that child, the physical child, which which you know we're as we we are the physical representation of what our mother and father have created. Um, I'm not putting like a lid on that to say that like that's all you are but we come forth through that portal of our mother and our mother was unified with our father and we we are a result of that um, and a lot of their consciousness can affect our own as well but when you realize that creation doesn't necessarily result in the physical manifestation of sex you can actually use your sexual energy to actually manifest your desires if you want to and that is almost the same way of using your womb power or like using the the sacredness of your womb to create consciously and I think it's really interesting how David Bowie really really does try to trick her and then she she wakes up and she's like you have no power over me you know at the beginning of the labyrinth she was reading the the she was reading that book which she actually is in that book you know, she's the main character in that book and she actually, she's quite childlike and immature at the beginning and obviously throughout the story she learns, I'm kind of going off topic here but I'm, I'm bringing it back to D&D and to Stranger Things in the, in the sense that she doesn't want to babysit her brother, she doesn't want to be responsible, you know, she's 16 years of age as far as I can remember and she's just quite spoiled Um, and she learns over this trajectory of having her 
brother being taken from her and realising how powerful her words are to create her own world. You know, she learns and she grows up along that labyrinth where she ultimately, in this labyrinth, finds herself. Um, and while when she finds herself, she comes back to the centre of herself, which is where all that all power stems from. It's not outside of you. It's not David Bowie giving you, you know, power, you know, the false illusionary power. It's, wait a minute, I'm in a dream and you have no power over me, you know. And, and that's what it's about. It's about realising that the, the power is and always has been with you, the one that builds her and his or their own world, as opposed to living in a world that somebody else has built for you. And that's this ultimately this simulation in this game of life is that what we see as a social norm, we don't have to accept it. We don't have to accept things like racism, knowing fine well that racism is bullshit and it's a social construct. And I love what Greg Thomas said, is that we don't even have to just accept that racism is a social construct because we do accept some social constructs, don't we? So it's about, you know, realising that it's just utter bullshit. And he basically said, it's important to realise race is bullshit. That when I look at you, first of all, the white and black is a misdemeanor. Any fool can see that the white pe that white people are not actually white and so-called black people are not actually black in terms of the colour. What does that mean beyond that? Does it mean anything about your intelligence or your character, what your interests are, what part of the world you come from? I might be able to get an idea of what part of the world you came from, but I don't actually know until I, you know, I don't actually know until I hear you speak. The biological definition is a non-centralisation of race, is nonsense. It's bullshit, but that's been known for a long time. But I think it's also important to not just accept the idea that race is a social construct either. Certainly a case can be made and has been made that it's a social construct. But I think if we're going to move beyond the hold of race, racialization, which exists under a kind of racist worldview, a way of seeing and being in the world and acting upon seeing and being in the world through a race, racial lens, racist lens, then, when we have to challenge, then that's when we have to challenge the social construction of race making clear distinctions between race, culture, heritage and, and, and ancestry, etc. There's clear distinctions between and among those and, and amongst those. And if we had clarity amongst those distinctions, then we wouldn't fall into so many of the traps that race and racialization bring forth. And that turns into racism, which is the mistreatment or differ differential treatment of people based on those external selected characteristics and the sonning of attributes of those things. It also takes away any sense of individuality. There are individuals that can be racist. You will have groups of people that are racist. And then there's the whole issue of systematic racism, which I prefer to say systematic bias. I think there are biases. And these biases are not just race. Class is a real strong dimension. Um, people who are identified as black in America, both ethnically and culturally, are not just a sum of our degradation and brutalisation. We have created, based on the predicament that we go through, ways of seeing and being in the world. Ways that looking at life that Ellison called a tragic co comic perspective sensibility. Where it's not just a tragic awareness that life can be absurd and that death could come at any point, but also to even laugh at the absurdity. absurdity. Without that, it's like we may as well just commit suicide or something. So a tragic comic sensibility is an important aspect. You look at the reality of man's inhumanity to men, women and children and other. Still need to do what we have to do every day and be our best. Strive for excellence. Strive for excellence in your morality. Strive for excellence in your interpersonal relationships and in your skill set professionally so that you can be your best. And I think that's really important that 
regardless of the, the unconscious collective or the visible world of Stranger Things, is what's been held, you know, the atrocities of, the, of, the, of what's been held within the shadow, which I will talk about later. It's really important for us to really look at that, but not just to get stuck in stuck in that aspect of, of you know, looking at who we are as human beings and, like, you know, the, the fuckery and the mess that we've made on this planet, but also to actually enjoy as well our existence here. So I think that was really important to mention that. And I am going to include that quote um, from Gen- Jennifer Connolly in The Labyrinth, just because I think it's really beautiful. And I, I, I'm not going to say I'm going to do an esoteric breakdown of this movie, but it has been on my list, so maybe one day. Through dangers untold and hardships unnumbered, I have fought my way here to the castle beyond the Goblin City to take back the child you have stolen. For my will is as strong as yours and my kingdom is great. You have no power over me. And I think that's just fucking beautiful because that's, you know, it's all about willpower. You know, her willpower was weakened on the search for this child, this 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 desire that that um, was manifested, which is the child. And in this goblin goblin city with all these little goblins and all these like little monsters, they try to distract her. And I think it's really important to, to realise that willpower again is coming up and you know, my will is as strong as yours and my kingdom, my kingdom is great. My kingdom as great. And honestly, go back to that scene if you've got five five seconds to just go and watch it because I just find it really beautiful how he tries to trick her. Like the ultimate, like, trickster Gemini slash Pisces Virgo mutable trickster energy. Um, and I just think it's just really, really important to, to, to bring that in in terms of, like, connecting it to stranger things and will and willpower and things like that which I spoke about in, in the last last podcast but again coming back to D&D and the connection between this imaginary world we can create our world we do create our world from imagination everything that we've created externally has come from our imagination whether that is conscious or unconscious so you'll have to excuse me because I, I haven't actually played Dungeons and Dragons ever you know this this game that was first published in 1974 and I find the, the actual, um, the agenda of the game quite interesting um, as it pertains to our own ev- evolution, if you look at it from a non-literal perspective. So Dungeons and Dragons departs from traditional wargaming by allowing each player to create their own character to play instead of a military formation. These characters embark upon imaginary adventures within a fantasy setting. A dungeon master, a DM, serves as the game's referee and storyteller while, while maintaining the setting in which the adventure occurs, adventures occur and playing the role of the inhabitants of the game world. The characters form a party and they interact with the setting's inhabitants and each other. Together they solve dilemmas, engage in battles, explore and gather treasure and knowledge. In the process, the characters earn experience points in order to rise in levels and become increasingly powerful over a series of separate gaming sessions. So there's participants seated, you know, around a tabletop, as we saw in the first episode of Stranger Things, where they're sat around a table, and typically one player takes on the role of Dungeon Master, while the others each control a single character representing an individual in a fictional setting. When working together as a group, the player characters are often described as a party of adventures, with each member having their own area of speciality which contributes to the success of the whole. During the course of play, each player di- directs the char- the actions of the character and interacts with other characters in the game. <laughs> it sounds like our simulation. The activity is performed through the verbal imperson- impersonation of the characters 
by the players while employing a variety of social and useful cognitive skills such as logic, basic mathematics and imagination. A game often continues over a series of meetings to complete a single adventure and longer into a series of related gaming adventures called a campaign. Elle, she's, you know, she's, she's almost at the beginning, she's quite non-verbal really, isn't she? And I think like that trauma, um, it's almost symbolic of how our inner feminine is also non-verbal. You know, our trauma is silent and it speaks in, and, and obviously the femi- the subconscious mind understands language of pictures and words. And I feel like when she doesn't speak at the beginning in season one, it's though, or at least doesn't say much, it's like her soul expression is muted because her en- energy's been drained. And what actually has been drained, like it's her soul, like she's been used by Dr. Brenner, that power within her, that innate feminine power, which hides because it's been suppressed for so long. It hides and it's been drained by Dr. Brenner. And it reminds me of where we are now, just in like certain religions, I'm not even gonna say too much about those religions, but religions that, or at least those mainstream religions, um, I'm sure there's like off, off roots or, you know, different denominations or different sects of particular religions that don't particularly do this. But when they have the woman as the subservient, submissive underneath the man, um, I find that interesting because the man often suppresses his own feminine energy or agrees to his own feminine energy being suppressed in order to live up to what society has said is a real man. Um, and then any relationship he ends up in, the only woman that would be with that individual would be somebody, for the most part, I'm trying not to think black and white here, but somebody that allows her own inner feminine to be suppressed. And you see how a lot of religions, well, I'm mainly thinking about Christianity and um, Islam. I think, I can't speak too much for Islam, but I think growing up Christian, I definitely see there's a difference between Christ in Christianity, or at least Christianity as a personal experience or personal, tangible spiritual experience and what the mainstream is telling you how to interpret all of that. Breathe is what Terry remembers her sister telling her as she went into labour, while sunflower was the first thing she saw when she woke up after giving birth, and the rainbow signifies what was on the door to the room where she presumably saw a toddler aged 11 at Hawkins' lab. Three to the right, four to the left, refers to the combination of the safe she opened in order to get the gun to bring to the lab, and sadly forfeit the amount of volts of electricity that Dr. Brenner ordered Terry to have while administering her with electroshock therapy. I find that really interesting, the amount of volts of electricity when we're talking about the names, and one of the names meaning Thor, which is to do with electricity. Um, you know, so L's name is also Jane. And Jane means God is gracious. It's the feminine version of John. So again, all of these names, how is it that all of these names are associated with God? Or they mean something that is to do with God? And we could say that God is gracious. Like our, sometimes when you're in the pit of hell within yourself, because hell is a state of consciousness, and you can be in hell today and heaven tomorrow, depending on where your energy is focused. It is your higher self that rescues your lower self. It is your highest self, highest self, 
that is going to rescue you. And therefore you could say that God is gracious. Because what and who really is God? That is a whole other podcast. I'm not going to get into that right now. Um, Again, I think it's really interesting that also Will talks to, in the first season, where Joyce is on the phone to um, Will. She can't hear him directly, but she can hear him speaking. And the phone is yellow. And I think that yellow is the, it's, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Yellow is the colour of the solar plexus to do with willpower. So it's almost like there's, there's, there's a puzzle of little pieces that are put together when you understand the overall message of any movie of any series and it's not I don't think that it is just to entertain there's an element of us wanting to be entertained but do we want to be entertained because we're not consciously creating we just want to consume and consume and consume and even when we are consuming we know deep down or at least subconsciously we're getting something from it if not we just go oh that was just a great show that was really a great show you know and I think deep deep down we understand the truth of it but it's when you bring it to the surface and, and connect the dots, to, dots together, it's like, yeah, that really was a really deep and interesting show. It's really interesting as well that Elle doesn't know anything about privacy in, in season one. And when she starts to undress in front of Mike, Lucas and Dustin, and Mike says out loud, privacy, you know, it's quite clear that she's had her boundaries crossed from trauma from her dad. And I think this is, this is again, how interesting it, how interesting it is when you look at trauma when as a child your boundaries have been crossed you don't necessarily know how to protect those um, boundaries in adult life and that's where the whole dynamic of the empath or the codependent so to to speak and the narcissist um, get together because both of those people regardless of whether we see one as bad and one as good have had their boundaries completely crossed as children and they've tried to survive in completely different ways. One becoming more like the abuser and one becoming uh, the one that self-negates and the one that allows others to abuse them um, in order, if even, to get validation. It's interesting, they lose will and they find L. And when you lose your willpower, it's quite significant that you are redirected to the source of that willpower. When you piece these little pieces together, it is really redirecting your consciousness back to God. Now, I have my own perspective on who God is and what God is and whatnot. Um, And I'm sure that deep down my perspective still is very rooted in Christianity, but it it is a lot more of a uh, broader view of God and I think that we are are a part of God with a capital G again God also being God the acronym for generator operator and destroyer and there is a part of us that does need to be destroyed in order to reach God in order to experience God and it is the unconsciousness that separates us from God ultimately separates us from ourselves. When we are separated from ourselves, we are so easy to control. If you're not protecting your will and desire to create, you are then giving somebody else power to create for you, ultimately to control you. 
and that's what it's about. Elle obviously was young and she didn't have a feminine presence around her in order to mirror back to her, you know, this is, you know, this is my sacred energy, I'm being manipulated, I want to fight against it. Ultimately, she was trauma bonded with Dr. Brenner, who was her fake dad, obviously, and that whole um, appeasing the abuser, um, it, you know, that's that ultimately is not her fault, because that was the only father she knew. And I'm not even too sure they've actually, I mean, I can't remember. <laughs> it's funny if you've actually seen an episode and I actually don't remember. Who actually is Elle's father? Why doesn't Elle have a father? Um, and again, when you've been through so much trauma, it is so hard for someone to say to you, you know, oh, just have joy and just have hope, you know? It's, it's joy and hope. You experience that when you're able to transform your pain into power, when you're able to alchemize that trauma, deep trauma, into power. It's transformational. It's, there's nothing like it. And it involves going into the pits of hell and Scorpio is to do with Hades and hell and the underworld again, <laughs> the upside down, whether we're given an opportunity to heal. Not heal because everyone's talking about healing and healing for the sake of healing. You know, you want to get to that point where you're just like, well, okay, I'm healing, but, you know, if I don't even understand what I'm healing from, where do, I don't know where I'm going. And it's all about creating. Once you've healed your trauma, <laughs> you can heal your trauma and create from a blueprint of love as opposed to where most of us are creating from is a place of fear. I was saying this a couple of podcasts ago that as soon as I get up, I don't even allow fear to run through. Our brain is on autopilot. It constantly looks back into the past and basically projects fear back into the future because our memories are just on replay. Memories on replay, memories on replay. And I was reading, I think for the third time now, because every now and again, I'll read the same book again and I'll get a fresh perspective from it or I'll pick up something that I didn't pick up the first time I read it. And I'm reading Digital Minimalism again and by Carl Newport. Newport. He's called Cal Newport. Newport. Cal Newport. Where where is that book? Oh, it's in my bedroom. Um, Newport, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and it was talking about there's a social. Um, there's a part of the brain that, say, for example, you're not focused on something. The minute you're not focused on something, your brain automatically is in a social. It's like a social network. I don't know if I even like explain this properly, but you're basically always thinking about your problems or always thinking about somebody else in relation to yourself. And they said that as much as babies are not consciously aware of social... Yeah, it's basically like even the part of the brain that lights up also lights up in a baby. And it's kind of weird, isn't it, that we're just kind of always on autopilot. And positive affirmations are great. They're helpful for the conscious mind, but the conscious mind is not what's ruling the show. The driving seat is the subconscious mind, but the illusion is 
that you think that you're controlling your life. But ultimately, anything that you allow influence into your mind, into those deeper layers, whether consciously or unconsciously, is having some effect and some control, which then affects the desired output. Because there is a little bit of manipulation going there if you don't understand your subconscious mind. Again, I'm going to throw this book out there. The Power of the Subconscious Mind is an amazing book. I've read it about four times. Um, yeah, and it's just, you know, finding that God within. Finding God within. Whoever God is to you, work with that power. And if that power is for you, then who can be against you? Because you're not even looking at that dualistic polarity of my enemy over there. You know, I was having a discussion today with, with my friend Joseph, and uh, he plays the cello with me, and we were talking about veganism, and I was just like, I don't like being around vegans that, and, and if this offends anybody, so be it. I, I, I'm not trying to offend anybody. I'm just basically sharing my thoughts. Um, I don't like vegans. And it's not just vegans. It can be religious people. It can be people that are, in, that are into politics. Anybody with like a really strong opinion about something. And they want to force other, other people to behave like they do because they think they have the right perspective. This game, this life, this simulation, whatever you want to call it, this plane of existence, operates and enables people of various states of consciousness to be here at the same time as other beings that have various states of consciousness. That's why people that are on a lower frequent, lower vibration typically don't really resonate with those that are on a higher vibration. If you're sat there talking about the news and gloom and the end of the world and moaning about the job that you don't want to be in, knowing that you can consciously and subconsciously change that situation, but instead of using that energy to do that, you're sat there moaning about your job. Not to say that we haven't all done that because we have. But what I'm saying is that there are those that understand that energy is currency, take that emotional energy and do something productive with it. It's like we don't have to be at war with each other because I'm Muslim and you're Hindu. We don't have to be at war with each other because I'm straight and you're pansexual. We don't have to be at war with each other because you're white and I'm black, you know, because, like, human beings are not colours anyway. I've said this so many times, it annoys me. We don't have to be at war with each other because you're liberal and I'm Democrat. In fact, let's just change that. I'm not liberal. I support the Liberal Party and you support the Democratic Party. You know, I'm not vegan. I just choose to eat vegan food. How about we just separate ourselves from fucking labels, you know? Jesus, like, and I was just saying, like, I'm completely going off track. I will come back in a second. Like, I just find it really hard to... I think there's, like, a community that's come... It's become very cultish that, like... I try not to say that, you know, use the phrase, like, I'm vegan and things like that. I just eat vegan food. And I still am very... have a very ethical standpoint to animals. Like, I was going to go to Chester Zoo the other day with my mum, and I'm glad that I didn't because I think I would... You know, I wouldn't go to Chester Zoo on my own at all. But it was to support a family member. And, um... I was just like, I'm so glad I didn't go because I'd just be emotionally traumatised seeing these beautiful, incredible, fascinating, phenomenal creatures of existence that are so fucking precious in these cages. Like, oh my God, it's tearing my heart even thinking about it. And they don't need to be there. They're there for our entertainment. And that, to me, is disgusting. It's vile. 
and that is how I feel about it. Therefore, I just don't go. I just don't give them my money. Um, and I haven't been for years, and obviously the, the, the opportunity to go did arise through an invitation, and then I just thought about it, and I was just like, no, I'm sorry, I wouldn't enjoy myself there, and I just don't want to support that. So I didn't go, um, but I was invited, and I think that when you are connected to source, when you are connected to yourself, when you've healed your own trauma, instead of projecting your trauma onto other people, or expecting other people to save you, instead of saving yourself, you step away from that, and you actually realise that, I mean, my friend we're talking about, um, he was saying that, you know, bisexual people, or those, you know, LGBT people, well, he was specifically saying bisexual, it's the next stage in, in human evolution, it's like, you're able to see from a higher perspective, from that third eye, and I was like, I totally resonate with that. Like, I I don't identify as pansexual, but I think that's the closest thing as to how I feel, which obviously, energetically, I don't think any label will really satisfy me enough to say, yeah, this label completely, you know, describes who and what I am. Because human beings, and I'm talking about myself here, but then projecting this up to, to others in the world, like, we're so fucking complex that you couldn't ever really think that a label would really describe someone, you know? But, and it's true, it's like, oh, just there's something so stale about a woman being unhappy in a heteronormative relationship where there is room for abuse of her feminine energy. I'm not saying that in every heteronormative relationship that happens, but I'm saying that that is what society wants us to put up with. That I'm just like, what? No, <laughs> just no, you know, um, I'd rather empower myself and use a platform like this to empower others because what are we actually doing here? It's like, why do we want to go around suppressing other people's energy? It's that patriarchal energy that exists within Dr. Brenner who's just suppressing Elle's energy, using her feminine energy for himself because he doesn't have access to his own inner feminine so instead of him tapping into his own source he's using somebody else to do it he's using somebody else to do his dirty work and that's ultimately what patriarchy does and we allow it we the people we sit here and we agree to it and it's like the amount of angry patriarchal suppressing energy that comes from Hopper and Dr Brenner you know I think Hopper's able to you know I do feel like he alchemizes it I really do I really think that his relationship with Elle really changes him um, you know and maybe because of his own trauma of losing his own daughter I think she must have been about five when she died or I think she had a car accident or something I can't actually remember um, I think she died of cancer. I don't know. Um, and it's like he he enables him to she enables him. Elle enables uh, Hopper to not that Elle's giving him permission to do it. She she probably doesn't realise it's happening, but him connecting to her 
it's allowing him to ultimately connect to his inner feminine, which then opens up the floodgates of trauma of his own daughter dying. And I think at first he tries to control her because of it's because of fear. He doesn't want to lose her like he lost his daughter. So then he becomes controlling. And we see that um, we see that controlling negative side of the masculine because you know we're not associating masculine with bad and feminine with good because for goodness sake the feminine can just be as toxic so I really do want to go a bit deeper into the shadow psyche um obviously going back to Jungian psychology here if you've been listening to this podcast long enough you'll know I love Jungian psychology I'll just depth psychology in general but I particularly pay a lot of attention to Jungian psychology um, as it pertains to my own healing as well and the shadow which to me esoterically when I'm looking at stranger things I've said this before um, that the upside down represents that um, collective unconscious and looking at Carl Jung's warning to the world about the shadow um, he said in volume two of psychology and religion the west and the east everyone carries a shadow and the less it is embodied in the individual's conscious life the blacker and denser it is if an inferiority is conscious one always has a chance to correct it but if it is repressed and isolated from consciousness it never gets corrected and it is liable to burst forth suddenly in a moment of unawareness at all counts it forms an unconscious snag, thwarting our most well-meant intentions. He talks about um, there being two types of shadows. There's the, the type of the shadow part of our psyche that's very unknown, which is the personal shadow. And then there's the collective shadow, um, which I sometimes refer to that as the collective unconscious. I don't know if that actually is two different things, but because I'm not even thinking about what I'm saying, <laughs> I'm not even thinking about what I'm saying, but I really am. The un- which is like the, the collective shadow is the unknown dark side of society, which I would see esoterically in Stranger Things as the upside down, that invisible world that eventually through season four starts to leak into the visible world, the tangible world, and breaks that veil of, or the barrier of the invisible and the visible. Now they're coming together and, you know, the invisible world's like, excuse me, you've been ignoring me for too long. Now I'm bursting through, you know. Um, so Jung calls it the thing a person has no wish to be. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit from volume 16, The Practice of Psychotherapy. It represents unknown or little known attributes and qualities of the ego. This is a shadow I'm talking about. It is the sum of all those unpleasant qualities we like to hide from ourselves. The shadow contains inferiorities which everybody has but but prefers not to know about. They seem weak, socially unacceptable or even evil. The shadow is most visible when one is in a grip of anxiety or other emotions or under the influence of alcohol etc. One may suddenly burst out into hostile remarks during a friendly conversation. When we do not want to assimilate what we despise we will project it onto others. It is possible for one to be acquainted with one's shadow and be partly conscious of what it is, under ego control. Many people, however, refuse to recognise their shadow so completely that the ego is not even aware of shadow behaviour, and thus has no possibility of commanding it. 
Under these conditions, the shadow is autonomous and may express itself in inexpressible moods, irritability, irritability and cruelty. Throughout his writing, Jung referred to the importance of developing awareness of the shadow in psychotherapy and its projections in the individual's life. Um, although the shadow is usually perceived as negative, it can also be positive. In fact, exploring our shadow gives us access to many positive qualities. And that's what I was saying about when, even when we're talking about alchemy, it's like uh, in my podcast with Daniel, when I was talking about the alchemy of the soul, or maybe I've heard him refer, maybe I've heard him speak about this somewhere else, or I can't remember whether I spoke to him about this on my podcast, um, that the dross of the soul is what's what's weighing the soul down, what's weighing us down, and it's when you're able to alchemically take that dross or the, the heaviness of the shadow and transmute that, or transmute the lead into gold, or transmute unconsciousness into consciousness, you just automatically become lighter. You know, it's like, for example, you know, every now and again you might see somebody's shadow be projected, for example, I noticed somebody particular in my life that I realised used to give me these shadow looks like I'd be in conversation and I'd see this individual constantly give me this kind of, you know, what people call the evil eye and they're projecting their own shadow onto you and um, their own lack of awareness of what they struggle with and whether they assume that I can see those looks or not, that's a whole different story but it's like instead of people and this comes with people that are, you know, can be slightly codependent or, um, in my observation anyway, people that can be slightly um, people-pleasing um, or so much more like covert narcissism within people that instead of just being direct and saying what people mean and saying what they feel, some people can, can kind of take on that personality of being quite cowardice. So instead of just being like, I disagree with you, you know, and talking about what you disagree with, that person might hold back what they really think and then the shadow side of that person's psyche is very apparent because of how they're looking at you or how they're, you know, their mannerisms, everything that they're trying to hold because they fear or maybe they fear at some level that showing who they truly are, they're not going to be accepted and they're not going to be liked. So they wear this social mask to hide themselves Whereas me, I'm just, what you see is what you get. And if I need to say something, I am going to say it from a place of love. But if that hurts somebody, ultimately, I would rather hurt somebody's feelings in truth than not say something at all and hold all of that unconscious shadow back, which really hurts the person even more, I think. Um, Jung writes that the shadow displays a number of good qualities such as normal instincts, appropriate reactions, realistic insights and creative impulses. And I can tell you now as an artist myself that it is so incredibly powerful, my goodness, when you're working with the shadow psyche in how you're able to process yourself even through the artistic expression of music. Um, and for someone that has been doing the shadow work, it's not something I do every day. I just go through life and I'm aware of it. I acknowledge my own shadow that comes up I notice things that I get jealous about or I'm envious about in other people or things that irritate me really you know really heavily and then I have to sit back and take some time to be like does that person annoy me because they have something that I don't or is that person showing me my own potential and I've not stepped into my own highest potential therefore that person becomes a threat to my own you know my own you just, it just the person just becomes a threat and I think that that's why it's so important 
even when it comes to things like racism and bigotry and you know being homophobic that unless someone's willing to look at their own psyche and look at what what is actually going on within themselves the collective the collective conscious doesn't really evolve past what is socially acceptable it's socially acceptable to be for the most part homophobic and to see heteronormative relationships as the be all and end all and you know society's rewarded to some extent for, for for those for those viewpoints in volume nine part one of carl jung's archetypes in the unconscious collective sorry the collective unconscious um he did a collaboration with marie louise von franz and writes the shadow is not necessarily always an opponent in fact he is likely it's funny how he refers to first the shadow is he he is exactly like any human being with whom one has to get along sometimes by giving in sometimes by resisting sometimes by giving love whatever the situation requires the shadow becomes hostile only when he is ignored or misunderstood and that is so important in stranger things like i was saying um i'm just double checking that i'm actually recording here um yeah i am um you know, whether where the characters in season four, they come to terms, which I think is really interesting, actually, they come to terms with what is hidden within their shadow psyches. And that's why Vecna is is almost like it, it's coming across as is almost tormenting them. And he's forcing them. I'm here, shadow. I'm forcing you to face me now. Um, obviously, strange thing is not, to, not meant to be taken literal, so we're not meant to physically actually die. But it is a, a, a death of, of, you know, when the when the when the unconscious becomes conscious, you're basically putting a light on what is hidden. Now, if we hide our talents, if we hide our abilities, if we hide our so-called evils, depending on, you know, who's defining what is evil, whether that is the mainstream dogmatic church or whether that is some organised religion that has de- deemed something evil, to prevent you from actually exploring that area, so that you don't actually become aware of your own psyche and that the devil and God are two different parts of your own mind. But yeah, anyway, and what we don't want to look at within ourselves, we will then say, oh, well, that, that the devil made me do it or like it wasn't me, it was the devil or like God told me to do this or whatever. It's like I can purely understand from a Christian perspective the whole polarity or the whole divide between God and the devil. And really, it's almost like the left and the right side of your brain or like the feminine, the masculine polarity, which exists within human beings and within nature. And when we become aware of that perfect balance or that symmetry between the yin and yang, we get so much more of a broader perspective rather than being controlled by polarity, like on this swing, this pendulum swing of like, I have that opinion and I don't like you because you have that opinion and it's a constant tug of war. Like you don't have to be so polarised in you know, the upside down or the realistic world, which world is actually the real world or which world is actually more important than the other. The upside down is evil and the real world is actually good. Well, let's look at that. Let's look at what's actually happening in Stranger Things and the so-called goodness of the world where these children are getting abused and getting neglected by the parents and like, you know, um, some of the parents are really passive. Some of the children are getting bullied, you know, that episode in season one, I think it was the first episode or the second episode where um, Elle saved her friends from literally almost being thrown off the cliff by a child who clearly, you know, you can tell that this child was extremely violent and was ready to literally almost kill the, the, the main character of Stranger Things. And it's almost like, 
what does that represent? That there's something within that child, this child must be deeply hurting in order to look at a group of kids that I almost think like the kids in Stranger Things are definitely neurodiverse. Uh, they're probably neurodivergent individuals, they're quirky, you know, they're just, they're just really unique human beings. And that's not to say that neurotypical people are not quirky and individual and whatnot. It's just that the more different you are, the more you stand out. And it's like this invisible world of our shadow when you close your eyes and you connect to yourself, it's almost like <laughs> that invisible world. How, how much do we, for how long do we think that we can actually ignore our own inner space, our own internal world that we always, you know, we, we you know, it's like when you're um, in a relationship with, with somebody. I particularly have into some issues with inti intimacy based on some childhood trauma that I've been through and sometimes this can come up in certain relationships I've noticed it doesn't come up in all relationships but in certain relationships it will come up and it's always the same my invisible world that I'm trying to heal you know I'm trying to heal in this particular area of my life it's now leaking out into my physical relationships with people and it's like I've got to go back inside recognize what's happening within which is now affecting without so as within so without, as above, so below. Um, then in his book, Man and His Symbols, part three, the process of individuation, the realisation of the shadow, um, this is Marie-Louise Franz, said that the shadow contains all sorts of qualities, strengths and potentials, um, which if remain unexplored, give us a state of imp imp impoverization in our personality, creating unconscious snags, which in it inhibit the growth and embodiment of these good qualities that lie dormant in our psyches. For instance, a person might believe that being assertive is being rude or aggressive, losing the qualities of confidence and the ability to speak up for himself in an honest and respectful way, which in turn may lead to less proactivity, make it more difficult to get a raise or job promotion, struggle with money and so on. So when a person encounters an assertive person, deep down he feels resentment and guilt, which makes his shadow blacker and denser. These valuable aspects ought to be assimilated into actual experience and not repressed. And it's up to the ego to give up its pride. And this is a beautiful thing because I've noticed this, that people will always say to me, oh, there's nothing introvert about you. And I'm just like, yeah, that's, that's so surface level of my Leo rising social little mask or, you know, the way in which I... Uh, the way in which I express my cancer surname and Scorpio moon energy through this Leo uh, rising, um, which is on a surface level, people do not think I'm introvert at all until they get to know me and they realise, oh yeah, you're pretty, you're pretty introvert, aren't you? You really are. And it's kind of like, without, without being so polarised with the introvert, extrovert thing, but like, it's interesting, isn't it? My, well, people will assume that I'm not introvert because I'm very confident and I am very, very confident. Um, and that confidence doesn't come from the way I look, it doesn't come from my artistic expression, it doesn't come from, it actually comes from the deepest place in me where I know that I am held by the universe and that I have every reason to be here. And I would I would hope that, that everybody could have that type of confidence, that it doesn't come from looking perfect or because I don't, and it doesn't come from having a stick thing body because I don't. It doesn't come from being the most beautiful person in the world because I think there are so many more people more attractive than me. It's all subjective and relative anyway, based on you know, whose, whose perception of beauty is coming from, you know. And I think that when we're able to walk in confidence, there are going to be people that if they're not walking in that same type of confidence, they will see you as a threat. 
Um, and that really is all about repressing something. Um, we also encounter our shadows in our dreams as a person of the same sex as the dreamer. And it's what seems to be a criticism of our character from the unconscious and inner judge of our own being that reapproaches you. And the result is usually embarrassed silence. We must identify the contents of the shadow and integrate them into personal into our personality. And this is the process of the realization of the shadow, also known as shadow work. This is why I'd love. I cannot wait to see what they do with Vecna and how he wants to. Like I've said this before, how he wants to rebuild the world. Because think about it, guys. If that obviously it's not meant to be taken literal. If this stranger thing is just like an exploration of our psyche, when the shadow becomes conscious there is a balance of unity, there is a balance between the masculine and the feminine, and it's almost like the alchemical marriage between the masculine and the feminine, and then becoming androgynous and becoming, you know, that divine hermaphrodite, like the, and you're building a new world, and it's like now during COVID, the world's been, you know, everything that doesn't work in the world has been brought right to the surface. Why? Why is why is that happening? Why do, why do things need to be brought to the surface? I don't really think that they're being brought to the surface just to trigger us, for the sake of triggering us and keeping us at that trauma response. I think things are brought to the surface so that those triggers can be looked at, we can shine a light on it and actually do something fucking about it. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes, that whole George Floyd thing, situation, murder incident came to the surface and it was so overly, um, it was a very powerful energy of just being absolutely bombarded all over social media and it, and it really forcing our consciousnesses to look at it. And I think that it also gave us an opportunity and not just that, but several other areas of life um, during COVID to really look at what's really not working and to look at how you want to go about changing these things. And I think that that's where we are as a collective that you know, racism, classism, homophobia, um, the environment, like animal welfare, like our own welfare, like what we're putting in our bodies, like what, you know, if we, if we don't as a collective look at that shadow, if we don't realise the shadow, if we don't look at the unconscious as individuals, as, as opposed to being like, you're a bad person because you eat meat, so I'm going to take that meat out of your trolley, I'm going to put it back, I'm going to tell you now, you're ruining the environment. And it's like, that is just not how, that's not, like as a collective, like we're so behind where you think we would be with the amount of intelligence that is, that is, you know, there are so many intelligent people on this planet. But again, it's not just about the mind, is it? It's about the heart and the mind. And until we unify that intelligence with the heart, so unify the masculine with the mind, with the heart, the masculine with the feminine, we're just always going to be stuck in this polarity of like black and white and up and down and God and the devil and night and the day and you know, like we should have a matriarchal society and men should be submissive and like all men are evil, like you know, like and it's like, do we not understand that that swing of polarity is is there to so that we can see the middle point, the view, the 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 center right in the middle? And it's like nobody gets it, like. That is what alchemy ultimately is. It's about balance. It's about it's it's so simplistic. Alchemy is so simplistic, and it's like we've missed the mark. And even looking at Christianity, when they talk about sin, sin is just missing the mark. Like if you take it from a really logical perspective, like literal perspective, not logical. Sorry, it's like 
oh, I had sex before marriage, so therefore I've sinned, or, you know, I'm expressing myself as a, as a, as a you know, um, not homophobic, sorry, as a gay individual, therefore I, I'm wrong and I'm sinful and I'm going to go to hell. Well, the Bible doesn't actually differentiate the difference between one type of sin and another. So some people perceive that being gay is a sin, but if that's the case, then there's no difference between being gay and smoking, because those collective things that the mainstream Christian church has decided is evil or wrong, um, they're all the same. They're all the same sin. But the way that we focus on, you know, people that have sex before marriage or, you know, like people that choose to, to express themselves as, as, as non-heteronormative, then it's like there's such a divide and that really is the ego that's 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 expressing itself through the shadow lens, the shadow psyche that doesn't want to acknowledge itself. And it's like... Um, somebody that I know goes to uh, a church that is very LGBTQ in Manchester and it's it's quite beautiful to, to know that there are churches out there. I mean, obviously we know there are churches out there that that are not homophobic, but it's like the mainstream church of organised religion is homophobic and I think as a society we need to move forward. Um, here begins the painful... It was very painful in Stranger Things and lengthy work of self-education. One must enter into long and difficult negotiations with the shadow. A work we might say that is the psychological equivalent of the labour of Hercules. Through shadow work, one can observe one's shadow outwardly by watching one's emotional reactions and being radically honest about one's interaction with others and inwardly by exploring one's dreams. This allows one to become enlightened. Let's look at the etymological word of enlightened. It's just in light mind meant meaning mind this allows one to become enlightened and reduces the shadow's destructive potential not so much as it were by waging war against the darkness hello but by bringing the darkness into the light the light to the darkness and as young writes there is no light without shadow and no psychic wholeness without imperfection there's the duality you you know in order to have imperfection you would have to have wholeness psychic wholeness or energetic wholeness um, and Carl Jung writes in the psychology and alchemy, one must not strive for perfection, but rather wholeness of personality. <laughs> the lifelong process of individuation creates a balance between one, one's conscious and unconscious realms, aligning the ego to the self, the totality of one's personality. However scary or dark it is to come from our shadow, finding truth brings relief. Discernment of the truth, discernment of the truth is a process of authenticity. A painstaking evacuation, ex a painstaking ex excavation into the depths of our being to explore possibilities and limitations, distortions and the buried and often forgotten parts of ourselves and abilities. Most people, however, are too indolent, am I pronouncing that right, to think deeply about even those moral aspects of their behaviour of which they are conscious, let alone to consider how the unconscious affects them. And that's what I was saying about like the visible world or the normal world of Stranger Things and how that differs so significantly to the invisible world. And when that invisible world wants to break through, the cast of Stranger Things, you know, the main character, they're like, you know, fight against the darkness, you know, kill Vecna, da 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 But ultimately, we're not going to know even what who Vecna what what does he really want to create does he really want to destroy the world and is that actually a bad thing do we need to destroy something in order to rebuild it because I think like when people talk about like oh we need to destroy this and destroy the system da, da, da. listen unless you've got like a bigger plan than destruction 
what are we destroying things for? Like, <laughs> let's destroy this, it doesn't work, let's destroy that, it doesn't work. Okay, yes, you know, God, meaning generator, operator, and destroyer, you know, the third letter of that acronym being destroyer. Yes, there is destruction in, in just in nature itself and how the cycle of life and like, if we're just not generating, <laughs> then what are we destroying? God, generator, operator, destroyer. There's those like three levels of like, from the Hindu perspective anyway. And then the collective shadow. So the shadow can also consist of factors that stem from a source outside the individual's personal life. Here is where we stumble upon the collective shadow. The dark side of the unknown or little aspects of a society and culture. It consists of that which oppress, opposes our shared and collective values. I always find that really interesting, like when you're looking at like yourself as an individual and the collective shadow. It's just like when you work on your own shadow, you can kind of see very clearly the collective shadow and like everyone's just going along with things and being conformist rather than actually acknowledging that the collective shadow is a part of our individual shadows all being like being projected out. So the collective shadow refers to a huge multidimensional, often horrifying yet elusive aspect of human life to an immensity of harm inflicted on human beings upon each other and the natural world, the vast after effects of such harm in subsequent generations. We find the collective shadow in the projection of so-called darkness and inferiority in violence and oppression, in the invisibility of current suffering, in the denial of current responsibility. Look at the way we treat animals, whether somebody is vegan or not. I'm certainly not here to be on a podcast to say, hey, you should go vegan, it's the right thing to do. One, let's look at the word right, and then let's look at personal relationship with, with food and like everybody's individual you know the freedom to choose just like with the whole pro-life thing it's like regardless of whether somebody is pro-life or somebody is pro-choice you're only pro-choice because you have a choice you're only pro-life because you have a choice you're only vegan or you eat vegan food not you're a vegan you only eat vegan food because you have a choice you only eat meat because you have a choice everything is about having choice everything is about um the personal responsibility to make a personal choice but in the denial of that personal choice that's the collective shadow so while collective shadow material may be acted out brutally in like things like wars massacres and genocides it says here it may also hide under the often attractive cloaks of missionary activity such as mandating the use of particular languages and orwellian reality that we are experiencing in the present time can we get a hello as in the nature of all shadow material, whether individual or collective, its existence and influence may be pervasive without being obvious. Um, the collective shadow manifests itself outwardly in atrocities, persecution, physical suffering, sickness, poverty, mal malnutrition, alcoholism, crime, the death of cultures and so on. It may also manifest more inwardly amid the complexities of each individual psyche as hatred toward oneself. Ooh, that's a big one. One's heritage and one's culture, depression and feelings of impotence, the desire for revenge so that others might experience something like our own pain. That is huge because that's our culture, that's our society and it's so normalised. You know, it, it's just huge. The collective shadow is what has historically been labelled evil. Mm, I've said this before, but evil backwards is live. And if we're not living... 
we're collectively unconscious. So in the Christian tradition, it would be the devil. And someone who is possessed by the devil loses his human quality and acquires a demonic nature. Our primary response to evil, for Jung, must be the quest for self-knowledge, for wholeness, which presumes the assimilation of shadow material. The individual, quote says, uh, Jung says, must know relentlessly how much good he can do and what crimes he's capable of. Yes! This is what I was taught. This is what um what was spoken of in the esoteric astrology podcast is like the Scorpio, because I'm a Scorpio moon, it's that ability to do, you know, something beautiful, but also you can take that pedipalp and you can sting if you want to. And it is about having that knowledge of how good you can be as a human being, but also how, you know, you can do a lot of what we call bad and you are capable on that pendulum swing of I want to do this and I want to do that. But if you go to the extreme self-righteousness of I want to be good, you're actually so far on the pendulum swing that your shadow is automatically going to pull you back, but you're not going to be even aware of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's, there's just so much I can say there about um, Jung's perspective on the shadow. But, you know, we ultimately have to become aware of our own personal shadow even before we look at the collective and that's why in season four stranger things individually they're all going through an explanation exploration exploration of their own shadow which i think is fascinating um especially for me personally max mayfield's shadow of her feeling guilty that billy died and deep down she wanted him to die now she she was being oppressed she was being abused and she was you know being made to feel like she was a victim so her wanting him to die, they are real powerful feelings. And to, to come you know, to the forefront of wanting that person to die in order to escape your own suffering, I think that's just an honest thing to look at, that, yes, I wanted this person to die because, that, you know, you were, you, were, you were oppressing me. So being aware of that shadow um, and our own emotional uh, reactions instead of becoming, like, passive it just allows us to transcend suffering um and i think you know suffering is a part of this reality here um but instead of being unconsciously victimized and staying at that victim level of consciousness rather than being a victim why not be a victor you know you want to be victorious not a victim um and being aware of that collective shadow enables us to like not be sucked into it we take personal responsibility for ourselves, not the collective shadow. You don't, you know, in, from, from my perspective, you don't sit there and, I mean, it's not going to help, is it, to sit there and go, oh, these people, like, I mean, we all do it. We all have our own prejudices and we, you know, let's not sit here and say that we don't. But to a certain extent, it's like, that's just why moan about being in a nine to five job that you hate unless you're going to do something about it? Why moan about how much we've, you know, damage the environment and human beings are trashy and human beings are selfish. And But let's look at our own selfishness. Like, I've got to look at my own selfishness, like, you know, and, and what I do in my own life and take responsibility for it, you know. But the truth is always better than staying stuck in a difficult situation that you just don't want to be in. Um, and we just become denser. And the word black not being used as a negative word here, you know, black 
being um, just one polarization of black, you know, that spectrum of masculine and feminine and black and white, God and the devil up and down. We live in a realm of duality. What is the point in us focusing on the, on the division of that duality, but rather what is actually in the space of that duality? What is in the middle? You know, can we create healing for men? Or can men individually heal on their own? Because they've been so separated from their own feminine energy, the feminine polarity within them, that there's no, you know, it's very easy to see why the majority of men, especially like heteronormative, you know, people that, you know, keeping this patriarchal toxic, and I'm not saying that everything is toxic, but like, (laughs) the system truly is a representation of our individual toxic um, way of accepting life Um, and that we go along with it by not questioning it we go along with it by not facing our own shadow and I think Stranger Things does a perfect artistic exploration of human suffering and I mean honestly take a look at the main characters' lives and how much they suffer individually in each and every one of them. Um, And also not just their suffering, but their exploration, exploration, you know, of their experience here and specifically looking at Elle and her relationship with Dr Brenner and how much trauma she's actually in. I think you'd have to be quite a strong person to sit there and watch Stranger Things because it will pull upon your own trauma, it will pull upon your own triggers as well. So I think I'm going to leave it at that because I think I've um, I've gone way past my normal podcast of doing like an hour's worth of material, but I think an hour and a half is pretty good. And I, th- I hope that you get what you need to get from this podcast as always. And I'll see you soon.